0: Turn your Bibles to the book of Acts and chapter chapter five. Really, we're going to look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, But for context, we probably need to go a little further. So I read a little further back. I read to begin from uh, verse 32. And that would help us set the context of this. uh, important passage uh in the bible important passage in the life of the first church so um don't know how many of you know of um the, the the volcanic eruption uh that took place in in pompeii in 79 AD mount vesuvius right so volcano erupts and pompeii is covered in in ashes and thousands um, the city is wiped clean. The, everyone, thousands of the inhabitants lose their lives. Interestingly, though, thousands of years later, archaeologists are able to, you know, they, they visit the location again, and they, they, they find that so much of the city has remained intact. Um, citizens have lost their lives, but quite a bit of the... so So the city makes for... Uh, an interesting archaeological find and all the artifacts are left and so on. And so they're able to um, replicate, you know, the, the kind of, the, the, the nature of life in Pompeii, the commercial nature, the, uh, the fact that these were pleasure-seeking people, quite, uh, they seemed quite a, a wealthy, flourishing people, if you want. And they were able to replicate all these things. One of the most interesting finds, though, in this, um, when, when archaeologists revisit, is one... Um, that is uh, that's, that's that's made when uh, archaeologists noticed that uh, for some of the f- folks who died um, who died a long time ago um, with volcanic ashes, volcanic ashes had burned had landed on them, um, lost their lives, and where they, their bodies had rotted it, it left a, a cavity, uh, left these these empty spaces that basically indicated and showed you the the positions in which these folks died when the the volcano, when Mount Vesuvius erupted, when the volcano hit Pompeii, so that it was possible through um, some kind of archaeological technique for these archaeologists to uh, represent, replicate the actual position in some, the actual positions in which some of the citizens died. And so they did just that. They filled up this, this empty space, they filled up this cavity, and they were able to show that they were, for example, um, they were able to show that there were people who died, you know, while the volcano was erupting and destroying this building. There was people who died holding their hands, couples who died with their hands, you know, hugging each other, embracing each other, dying in that position. They were able to to replicate that. And you could see that they, you know, by filling um, this space with with, with with, with plaster and casting and, and so on. And so these, uh, the, these, uh, th- these represent a kind of uh, lasting monument to the tragedy that took place at Pompeii. Like you, you go there, you see that, and you say, this is how tragic, uh, this, is, this is the tragedy that took place in Pompeii, this is a tragedy that took place there. Ananias and Sapphira are, are a similar thing. They 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 represent this lasting monument of the tragedy that takes place when sin enters into the church. And uh, you're very unlikely that you're going to hear a Christian couple um, applying to be married and saying, "Her name's Sapphira, my name's Ananias." they probably have to the courtin. They won't go past the courtin stage because Christians. Um, associate this couple with the tragedy of God's judgment in the church uh, upon sin. Now, um, one New Testament commentator has said that the story of Ananias is to the book of Acts what the story of Achan is to the book of Joshua. You know the story of Achan, how early on when the people of Israel were setting out to... um, conquer the land of Canaan, and it was set now on their conquest. God visited the camp of Israel and dealt with Achan and his family. Dealt with Israel as well because of them, because Achan had stolen uh, uh, for, forbidden treasure, that which God had asked no one to touch. He had stolen and tried to cover up. And the sin of Achan caused um, trouble for the people of Israel. Well, a similar thing is going to happen here. Um, the trouble that the sin of um, Ananias and Sapphira caused for the first church, the early church, very early on, if you want, in in their own embarking upon a conquest. Um, Of course, this is a conquest to appropriate the victory that Christ has already given the church, but a conquest nonetheless. And this is what happens when their sin is found in the church. And so Ananias and Sapphira, this early on in the life of the first church, become a lasting testimony to the seriousness of sin in the church, to the holiness of God in the church, and and, and that the church is a holy community, and that the church um, as a community must take sin seriously, and that even in the church, God judges sin. and So we come upon this passage, which is kind of like an interruption in the flow so far. So far, what we have seen is zealous, spirit-filled, miracle-working apostles and, and, and church uh, pressing on in the work of the Lord despite persecution, right? Facing... Challenges but from outside, but being even more united inside, right? I was saying this last last time I preached from the book of Acts, that in response to the persecution that they face as a church, chapter four, their prayer lives seem to be strengthened. They go back to God in prayer, and the community is strengthened. So Acts 4.32 starts off by telling us about how the believers were freely of their own volition, sharing all they had with each other. And so that's the church we see, and it's, it's an ideal church. It's, it seems perfect, but in as much, as long as a church is in a sinful world, it never is perfect. And uh, any idea that Luke has some idealistic view of the church, that Luke has some unrealistic view of what it means to be the church is done away with by this story, the narrative of Ananias and Sapphira. And um, it, it reminds us, the church today, that even amongst the holy, sanctified, the, um, the praying persecuted, generous church of Jesus Christ, uh, that there can still be sin. And in some way, it's as mysterious as it is in this passage, because having read up to chapter 5, what you don't expect to see is sin in the life of the church, but you do see it. And it's sometimes there's no less a mystery for us in the church today. When, you know, it's not like it's only in unsound churches that you see sin appear, right? It's not like you can say, well, the preaching, the reason why there's sin in that church is because the preaching wasn't faithful. Reformed churches, Pentecostal churches, Baptist churches, Methodist churches all have their own experiences of how sin invades the church or have their stories of how sin can scandalize the church it's something of a mystery at times uh, but it's a reality that the church has to confront that uh, sin is like the lord said to to cain is at your door very often sin is there and we Even though we are God's people in this world, we still have to face up to it. What Acts chapter 5 does for us is not only allow us to be realistic and honest about the fact that sin occurs in the life of the church, but reminds us how and why. Why and how we must respond to sin tells us something of why and how we, can, we, we must respond to sin. Uh, the, the why is that God is holy. God is holy. That's the reason why we even talk about sin at all. It's why there can be a thing, such, a, such a thing as sin. You know, if the church didn't have sin, if the church didn't speak of sin, if the church didn't judge its sin, we would face less persecution. We would face less criticism, less rejection than we do right now. One of the reasons why folks hate the church is because they love sin and the church hates sin. And the how is that we must, that sin is judged. Sin must be dealt with. There is judgment in the house of God. That's how uh, we see the. First, that's what we see. That's what we learn from the this passage in the book of of Acts. And so that we 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 do well to read Acts chapter five well, and to understand it and to apply it as a congregation of believers who are desperate to uh, to serve a holy God, to worship a holy God. Now, let me then. Run through this uh, narrative of you by drawing your attention to um, three things, right? So, the first thing I'm, I'm saying is that one of the fundamental things that we learn in Acts chapter 5 is that the God of the church is holy, God is a holy God, and He is present with us. The holy God. Is present in the church. One of the key things that we we learn. So the Bible tells us that Ananias and Sapphira joined in, so you read up from you read further back from Acts four, they join in in this in the collective act of selling property and giving the proceeds to the church. Maybe what's likely is that certain congregants, certain part of the first group, first first church, had agreed that to support the life and work of the church, they would, you know, perhaps vow um, a certain amount, you know. And so Ananias get up there and say, listen, we're going to sell our property for this amount and we vow it to the church, we'll give it uh, to the work of the church. Um, This is something that Barnabas, the son of encouragement, had been, he had been uh, highly spoken of because of this, right? He had been praised earlier in verse um, 36. Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Right? He, he he done that and he was noted for that. A generous, respected, mature brother. He had encouraged the church by his actions. Ananias and Sapphira, um, for some reason, desire to have the same reputation as Barnabas. They want to be known also as those of a good name in the church. And so they say that they're going to do the same thing. Only it turns out that having sold their uh, property, they kept back some of the proceeds. So whilst they, told, whilst they made it seem to the church that this is how much they sold their property for, um, this is how much we sold it for, they were lying. They'd actually, they'd actually kept a, a share of that money for themselves. Lying to, expecting to be able to lie to the leaders of the church. Eventually, the story ends, right, with both of them facing God's instant judgment. They both both die. Ananias first, his wife Sapphira, follows. The thing here to note is that Ananias and Sapphira had only planned to lie to men. They knew that human beings cannot see what is in your heart. They knew that men cannot search other people's hearts, that men were capable of being deceived. They would have made sure that there was um, no evidence left they, they covered their tracks and they thought they had done so well. And they were actually right. You, cu- you can lie to men. can deceive men. You know, I, I know sometimes uh, s- folks want to act as though they are too spiritual to be deceived. Listen, your, your pastor doesn't know what's in your heart, right? Your pastor doesn't know what you are thinking. The, you know, some of us when we stand before pastors and, and, and men of God, Is we, we think we have to be, we decide to be at our best as though someone is looking through us and scanning us. Your pastors are not capable of doing that. They're not God. They can't search your heart. They're men just like you. What Ananias and Sapphira had forgotten was that God was among the people. Remember what Peter says in verse 3. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Then he says, you have not lied to man, but to God. In trying to deceive the church this way, Peter says, you've failed to acknowledge God's holy presence among us. And you know that this is a... Um, Staple verse for defending the deity of the Holy Spirit, probably his person as well. Peter says, Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? And it says, You've not lied to man, you've lied to God. So the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God among us, right? This ought to rebuke the careless ways in which people speak of the Holy Spirit today. He is very God. Sometimes Christians. Believers speaking about the Holy Spirit like he was just a ball of energy. Something they could throw out. He's the Holy Spirit. He is God. He is very God. And he is holy. But God is with his people. God is among us. And for that reason, Ananias and Sapphira should have feared I think that's the point. They should have had fear. Not fear of man, but fear of God. Now in this situation, we must say that God had decided to reveal these things to the apostles as early as as the representatives of of Christ on earth. God had decided to reveal these things to them. But it it was God that you were dealing with by coming into the church. When you've come into the church, you've come into the very presence of God. And you get this sense of how they should be responding by what becomes a repeated theme at least three times in this section. First of all, the Bible says that after, these, after Peter utters the words, you have not lied to men, but to God, Ananias heard these words. He fell down, breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Second time, when the same thing happens to Sapphira, who comes in, tells a lie just like a husband, faces the judgment of God, verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church. And later on, verse 9, 13, none of the rest dared to join them, seemingly indicating that the fear not only came upon the church, but then came upon those who would join them. There was a fear because God's holy presence was there. There is a right awe that we we ought to have of being in the presence of God. We, we, we ought to stand in awe. We ought to be, there ought to be a reverence. Um we, 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 that, that's, that's, that, that's the implication for the church because God is in the church because God is holy among his church we have to be in awe of him now very often people misunderstand what the biblical sense of reverence is biblical reverence and awe and fear is not merely synonymous with seriousness there's an element of that There is a gravity about coming before the presence of God. But if you define dancing, for example, or singing and jubilating as opposite to reverence and fear, then you would have to call the praises that the people of Israel gave to God in the Old Testament as devoid of fear. And reverence, and that be true. Reverence is not necessarily synonymous with somberness. There can be great joy whilst there is great reverence and awe. There can be shouting while there is awe. And Christians get the meaning of reverence wrong. True biblical reverence is recognizing that God is set. Apart. And so we have to surrender to his will for the church. True, holy, true, true, true reverence is recognizing that we can only approach God in the ways that he has determined. When a church is aware of the awe and the holiness of God, they won't lower his standards. They won't attempt to soothe the itching air. We can't attempt to please, please the masses. Reverence and awe means that the primary question we ask when we come to worship is not what people want, but what God wants. Now, interestingly enough, there is a place For asking about people. There is a place for being concerned about people, of course. But you see, you see the the order. We say, what does God want? And even our concern with what people want or need must be dictated by our dictated by God Himself allowing us to ask that question. We, We only are concerned for what people want and need in the life of the church and in the church's worship, and in the church's practice, if God allows us to do so. The church is set apart to God. We're not governed by any institution. We're not governed by any nation or country. We're not governed by people's preferences. We're set apart to God. And everything that takes place in the life of the church, of course, particularly in the church's collective gathering like this, but right through the church, it's decision-making, the thing it involves itself in, we are to feel that we do with a sense of fear, of awe, of knowing that we, we become insignificant. The holiness of God makes us realize that we must decrease while God increases. The holiness of God makes us realize that no man can be the star of the show or the center of the state. It is God's house, the house of God. There's awe. There's fear. There's reverence. And God was not afraid to demonstrate that in the life of the first church. That where there is God, there will be awe. And there's a sense... Of absolute surrender to this God who is great and holy and set apart, and we cannot by searching find Him, find Him out. You know, there's a the, the song that we just sung this evening, uh, "Only a Holy God." we sang it to begin with. Gets this absolutely spot on when it says, "Who else?" Would offer his only son. Who else invites me to call him father. Only a holy God. Why do I say that? Because very often. Christians fail to associate. The holiness of God. With him providing the only way. That we can get to him. God is so holy. So set apart. That we cannot buy our own ingenuity, our creativity, our logic, find him out. Only God can provide a way. And, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing as sacred, there's nothing as holy about a church as when it declares that Christ is the only way. If you go to a church that, if a church begins to dumb down the requirements for joining, begins to try and alter the marks of conversion, begins to accept a pseudo-gospel, begins to try and pluralize the holy books of the church, the holy book of the church, say that there's many ways to God. You have a church that is denying the holiness of God in its presence. God is... Holy is the thing that we learn from Acts chapter 5. And so the church is holy, set apart for him there to do his bidding. But because of that, because the church is holy, the church also recognizes the sinfulness of sin. Because the church is holy, there is a thing called sin. One of the things that it means for God to be holy is that he is set apart from all sin. He is set apart from all iniquity. He is pure. And that's one of the things that it means for the church. Because God is holy, the church recognizes the sinfulness of sin. The church does not play with sin. The church does not tolerate sin. The church does not condone sin. The church does not excuse sin. The church declares that Jesus Christ forgives sin. The church declares that Jesus Christ died for sin. The church declares that Jesus Christ washes away sin. But not that sin can be tolerated. Not that sin is okay. And this is what you see. Here in Acts chapter 5, the recognition that uh, sin is not something to be accepted or tolerated. Sin is something to be mourned. Sin is something to be delivered from, not something to be toyed with. And so let's look at the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, because that's what brought this that's what brought this tragedy. It's what disrupts the church at this point is their sin, right? And this, 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 this tragic, this bitter episode is caused by sin. You know, Peter, the Apostle Paul was despondent at one congregation who, who, who had sin in their midst. And he said, you boasted. They didn't mourn their sin. We must realize that sin is destructive. Sin is destructive in the community of God's people. right? Sin impoverishes, impoverishes the lives of God's people. It causes division in the life of God's people. Sin is not something to be played around with. And so... Ananias and Sapphira are involved in this sin. And for this sin, they face judgment. What are their sins? For one, they are thieves. right? They they attempt to steal. Even though strangely enough, and this this is why you have to realize what their ultimate sin is, and you see that in a moment, but strangely enough, they didn't have to steal this. You know, Peter says in verse 4, like 4B or something. Why is it that you have... Sorry. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And why it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So they were stealing for another reason. They didn't have to steal. They could have sold the property, and it was theirs. If they wanted to, they could have said, we're just keeping our property. But rather they chose to keep some back, even though they had promised to give a certain amount or whatever, and then proceeded to lie. So first, they're thieves. Now, Jesus Christ washes away the sins of thieves. Jesus Christ saved a thief on the cross. But he doesn't leave us as thieves. He doesn't allow us to go on stealing. And the church does not condone thieving, does not condone stealing. We recognize the sinfulness of sin. The Apostle Paul says in a powerful testimony of grace, let him who stole no longer steal. Jesus Christ tells us the thief, all your, all your 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 sins of stealing are forgiven and washed away with, but go and steal no more. We must, re- we, we, we must call call that a sin, and, and, and God is displeased with that as we see. God is displeased with any kind of stealing, right? And you must never forget that just because no, one, no man can see you doesn't mean God cannot see you. And you must take God seriously, right? You cannot be part of the church and be involved in any kind of stealing or fraudulent activity. Stealing from the government, stealing in any way, shape, or form is not of the Lord, The other thing we see them do is lie. They're liars, right? They're lying. Um, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? They they lie. The, The Bible says that Paul says, lie not one to another. So, lying is a sin. And... The church does not tolerate lying either. The church is a place where we say, it was wrong of you to lie. It was a sin for you to lie. You need to ask God's forgiveness. You can't keep on living in those lies or you're going to face God's judgment. Right? We struggle to find this balance, don't we? Here comes somebody who's being caught up in their lies and they want grace and they're asking you for mercy, and you know that you are you're needing to show that, and you say and and you say, Listen, he without sin can cast the first stone. And you say, We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And you say, The blood of Jesus Christ washes away all your sin. The truth lay his life down on the cross that he might bear the punishment for your lies. And you say, be encouraged. Even though you deserve judgment, Christ has taken up your sins. His spirit is in you. He will give you new life. And you never have to use your lips to tell a lie again. God understands. God is merciful. And that has to happen in the life of the church. But also, the church has to say, You're not to live in lies. You're not to walk in lies. You're not to tell lies. Lies are a sin against God. And there can be punishment for telling lies. Right? And the church has to hold both those things. And they're not in conflict. But what but, but, but you have is somebody that says, I, I, I shouldn't have to confess. My lies. I shouldn't have to repent of my lies. I shouldn't have to turn away from my lies. I want to continue in my lies and still be called righteous. Why does the church judge me? And the church judges there because our God is holy and sin must be dealt with. Ananias, you lied to God. But also, you know, their great sin perhaps is this sin of, of hypocrisy, of loving the praises of man more than they love the praise of God. As always, their greatest sin is a, is a heart sin. Uh, They, they, uh, they want to look a certain way before the church. They're so concerned for the praises of men that they are blinded to the glory of God. Ananias and Sapphira really want to be that generous couple. Jesus Christ told us, don't let one hand know what the other is doing where you give. Love giving that comes in the secret place. These folks had missed the series on the Sermon on the Mount. They really wanted to show off their giving. They really wanted to be praised for their giving. And so they choose the way of hypocrisy. You know, something we don't often hear sermons on, strangely because it's a very regular confession in the Bible, is the conscience. You know, very often Paul would say, I, I strive to have a pure conscience before God and man. My brothers and sisters, one of the great sins in the church, especially because we, it means that we are forgetting that there's a God who searches our heart is the sin of not ensuring that our consciences are pure towards each other and before God. What do I mean by that? It doesn't matter what I put on here in front of you, what facade I put on. God knows me and who I am at home. So, I mean, we don't do this as much here, but when I was growing up in church... The, the, the folks I prayed with were very, very uh, elaborate in how they prayed. They were, they, they were very, um, you know, it was, it, you, you couldn't miss it that they were praying. They would shake their heads. They would, you know, lift their hands, scream, and, you pray, and it was deep. And you close your eyes like you never open them again. And people couldn't miss that you were deep in prayer. I'm not talking about whether that's bad or not. I'm saying, but God knows whether you're going to pray, whether you're a person who prays at home or only prays in the prayer meeting, or, or, or what's more likely in our circles is that you stand up and give a very uh, eloquent, articulate, even Bible-filled prayer. You lead in a prayer that's very sounds so rich, and people praise you for your maturity. But God knows. If that's true or not, God knows. The hypocrisy that goes on in the life of the church is one of the great sins of the church, and God knows. And God despises it. A married couple that sit beside each other with great warmth and great care, and and they seem to be the picture of marital love and bliss, and yet the husband is committing adultery, but God knows hypocrisy and God despises it. A pure conscience before God, Ananias and Sapphira did not have. They didn't have a pure conscience before God. They knew what they had done was wrong. They knew they were about to deceive the people and that they had committed deceptions in only places that God could see. They were not pure before God. If God was to search your heart today, Ananias and Sapphira, what would he see? He would see me stealing the money. Their conscience was not pure before God. And because it was not pure before God, they had no problem with having an impure conscience before man. So they stand in front of Peter. Ananias, is this all? Is this all that you have sold? and they lay it at the apostles' feet, just like Barnabas did. They also lay it, but there's no purity of conscience. They're willing to lie to these men's faces. Now, don't forget that they are judged because of the lie that they tell to the church. God wants you to have a pure conscience also before men. It's not just about a pure conscience before God. That's it, it's true. But a pure conscience before God will lead you to having a pure conscience before man. What you're thinking of when you stand in front of people, how you feel about people, that you mean the words that you say to them, that you don't hold hate inside for your brother or sister. We must strive to have a pure conscience before God and man. Otherwise, the next thing is to play the hypocrite. And we must despise playing the hypocrite. Don't, don't live to impress people. You're better off breaking down and confessing that you're weak. Wear your weakness, but never play the hypocrite. Never do that. God hates sin in his church. You can't play Christianity. Now, I don't know if Ananias and Sapphira were saved. I don't know that the question is ultimately relevant. I personally don't think that they were. But it's not, you couldn't be certain either way. One thing I am quite sure of is that they thought that they were. One thing I am sure of is that they were pretending to be believers. They were professing. And here we find that because they don't have a pure conscience, they face the judgment of God. It doesn't matter what people think of us when God sees our hearts, the sinfulness of sin. And those of us who have received the message of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ, we have no need to hide our sin. We don't need to hide it. We can confess it to Jesus. There's no sin. There's literally, there's nothing you could have done that Jesus cannot forgive. Nothing that God will not be merciful to you for. So there's no need for you to try and cover your sin and be someone else. But this thing has to be real. It has to be real. You have to, and let me tell you, I'll say this last thing about the sin, that the sinfulness of this sin, and what we learn about the sinfulness of sin in the church community, is that, You see the the presence of Satan? Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Like how he had filled Adam and Eve to disobey God. He now fills Ananias and Sapphira. Satan has filled. They were meant to be spirit-filled, but Satan has filled their hearts instead uh, very often, the, when, when there's sin in the church, be careful, Satan is lurking. Satan is present. Satan is at work. It's interesting because Peter says, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And then later on says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. Right? It's not as though... Satan's actions are an excuse for Ananias. They're very true. There is warfare. Satan can fill one's heart. Satan can tempt you. Satan can deceive you. But obviously, Satan could have been resisted. And it's difficult to, understand, to, to explain the... Uh, to explain how those two things relate to each other, how Satan is leading us and tempting us and causing us to sin, and how we are also responsible for our decisions. What's important to say is that you and I are responsible. We can resist Satan. We can say no to sin. But also be careful. The enemy of your soul, the adversary of your soul, Is looking to draw you away. He's looking to lead you into the kind of scandalous sin that would demoralize the church, that would weaken the church. It's another reason why we must be sensitive to the reality of sin in the church. Because of Satan. The one thing Satan wants to do is cause us to sin so that we can be tempted to deny the power of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is why we must resist Satan. Brothers and sisters, this is why we must be honest before God and confess our sins before God. This is why we must confess our sins to each other. This is why we must have vital prayer lives. This is why we must fellowship with God's people and stay close with God's people and be with them. Because Satan is on the prowl and sin is can enter the church. Well, we see how destructive sin is, the sinfulness of sin, and it's not denied by the apostles here, and the church is not to deny it, regardless of what the world says and regardless of what the world feels. And the church isn't, the world is not going to like this bit either because the next thing we see that's very clear in Acts chapter 5 is that God judges sin. God judges sin. In in the church, God judges sin, and I think the implication is that the church itself must recognize its role in judging sin. We must affirm that, that sin is not tolerated, sin is not played with, sin is not excused, sin is condemned. Now, of course, it's condemned in the cross of Jesus Christ. But the church also must take direction from its master as to how it's to demonstrate the condemnation of sin that took place on the cross. Christ condemned sin on the cross, but there's also a way in which we're to display that in our day-to-day lives as a church. So, Peter says these words to Ananias. You have not lied to man, but to God. When he heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Same thing with Sapphira. She heard these words Um And she immediately fell down at his feet. The the nature of the judgment following upon Peter's words, the instantaneous nature of the judgment, straight death, all indicate that this was a unique display of God's power and presence in the church for judgment. God is present in the church to do many things, to do healings and miracles. He was present in the church to, to, to add to their number to save he's also present in his church to judge sin and so we can say that it is god who judges sin in the church this is true even when the church doesn't see the sin even when the church misses the sin and of course that can happen But God is present to judge sin in the church. Abraham says, the judge of the whole earth will do right. It's not for me or for you to ultimately determine how God will judge his people's sins. But he judges them. What's happening here with Ananias and Sapphira? Are they enemies of God? Perhaps. Are they children of God? Is this a... Are they a unique display to the church and so they face a sober, heavy judgment even though they'll be saved in the last days? That's possible. But ultimately, we learn that God not only hates sin, but he also, he judges and is a warning to us. Our God is a consuming fire. People may not see. Someone else might not find you out, but your God sees you. And uh, that's enough for us not to sin. Yes, it's, it can be a, a uh, motivating factor, if you want, that we are worried about what brothers and sisters will say and so on and so forth. That's true. But there's a God who judges in the church. And very often, the church really needs to recognize this. The, the, the church will find... That there are areas where we cannot speak the judgment of God, but leave it to God. God knows what He's doing, God knows those who are His. Now, let those who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, but God knows His people. And it is a, but we, we must say, it is a serious thing to play with the church of God. And we pray that God, all of us pray that God shows us mercy. And we thank God for his patience. We thank God for his compassion. And I was saying this morning, that we can all say a thousand times we failed and his mercy remains. But none of that grand and rightly, a uh, rightly, uh, broad declaration of God's mercy is meant to be contradictory to the reality that our God is also a judge and he can deal with his people as he sees fit and he can deal with those who decide to play around with the church he can he can deal with them God is a judge in his church it's a warning if you're going to join yourself to these people remember that God is a judge Uh, is Paul in First Thessalonians talking, warning the people in the church against adultery that says God is the avenger of those who do such. Where people might not see you, but God sees. And God really deals with sin. But we do know that um, for one, God decided, even though it's true that there is this instantaneous, clearly divine act of judgment, God decides to use. His church to represent, the church does represent this judgment. Peter speaks these words and certainly in the rest of the New Testament, the church is called to, to deal with sin. And that's the only other thing to say. There must be judgment of sin in the church. This is not about how you feel, what you like or don't like. Judgment is not pleasant. The Apostle Paul, who speaks some of, the most, uh, some of the most direct words on church discipline that we find in the New Testament, understood that uh, facing judgment for someone in the church can cause them grief and sorrow. He understood that. It's not pleasant, but the church is not to excuse itself from judging sin. Judgment must take place. Uh, the, of course, there are some, there, there are at point clear parameters, acts of excommunication, uh, and certain acts of separation that belong to the church. But it, but but judgment will take place in the church. So, so any understanding of the grace of God displayed in the church that suggests that it then excludes judgment that suggests that grace is contrary. So the presence of grace in the church is contrary to the display of judgment is a false understanding of the grace of God, a false understanding of the judgment of God. Remember what I said, this is God's house. This place is holy. Our response is to fear, to be reverent, And one of the ways we do that is by recognizing God's judgment upon sin as the church. We must do that. We must do that. And in the life of every church that sin will enter, which is every church, this this will be... uh, an act that the church is called to fulfill. And a world that hates judgment and any idea of judgment will hate the church for it, but so be it. It's not our church, it's God's. Let me close just by saying these two things. Firstly, I say one thing by, by, by virtue of an application. Let's strive not to be like Ananias and Sapphira. Perhaps you have been already sinned against God, um, walked with a a conscience that's not pure before God and not pure before man. God had his purposes for what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. Be thankful that the same has not happened to you. So while today is still today, you need to repent and turn from that. Don't play with the judgment of God. Don't play the hypocrite. Is God calling you? Oh Christian, to repent, to turn. Is God calling you to confess your sin? To, to confess pride in a particular area, to confess bitterness, to confess lust, and turn from it. I'm telling you, don't play the hypocrite. Live with a pure conscience before God. And man, turn. Ask God for grace. Ask God for help. Um Trust God and say, by all means, I must turn from this. By all means, there must be repentance. I must turn to God. By all means, uh, I, must, I must find grace. I will, I will pray. I will, I will speak to trusted believers and ask for counsel and seek support. But I, I can't continue to walk like this. There's something serious about praying hypocrite in the church endless grace abounds for the hypocrite thank god and yet we must take seriously god's judgment the last thing to say is actually drawn from the passage itself you know what happens after this episode i want to suggest is that ultimately the gospel continues to press forward now there are some verse 13 who would not join them. So that will happen because the God church is a holy place and it calls men to holy living. These people saw the, the, the judgment of God upon sin and said, I don't want anything to do with it. And some people will say that. They will say, well, this church, the, the church is always, the, the church wants to monitor my life or the church wants to call me, tell me what is right and what is wrong and the church is, and so I want nothing to do with it. They will say that. Some will say that, And they see the judgment of God. But you know, the rest of that section, verse 17, uh, sorry, verse 12 to 16, continues to say that whilst that also happened, there was also flourishing. The prosperity of gospel work. God was among them. Verse verse, uh, 14 And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. It's still a holy church that by God's grace will draw sinners to it. By God's grace. It's still a holy church that shining the light of Christ will show sinners what deep darkness they're living in and move them to seek salvation from the Lord. God's holiness is not a bad look for the church. We shouldn't be ashamed of God's holiness. No, there's a beauty to his holiness. And um, nowhere is that holiness displayed, like in the cross, like in the gospel. And if you lift Jesus up, he will draw men to him. When the cross and the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed, the gospel of a holy God Sinners will come. Amen.